I'm delighted to welcome today Mr. Rafe Kelly, the founder of Volve Move and Play, martial artist, parkour expert, wisdom seeker, and um, a very interesting guy. So thanks for joining me today, Rafe. I really appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, likewise. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you. And I thought the first thing to start off with, I suppose, I wanted to get your kind of framing of the meaning crisis and then how you see that dovetailing, I suppose, with Evolve, Move, Play and with your project there. Do you see it as a solution to it? Do you see it as a solution to an aspect of it? Um, I thought that might be a place for us to jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think there's many different ecologies of practices that are developing. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think that we're necessarily the, the complete solution. But I do think that <clears throat> there's perhaps something especially fundamental about what we're doing, because I don't think anything else has really evolved bottoms up from movement practices in the same way. And yeah, I, I believe that that's actually fundamental, that the the biggest driver of the meaning crisis is this Cartesian duality of mind and body and the capture of our minds within a machine paradigm. So I can, I can break all that down a little bit more. The machine paradigm part is something I'm thinking a lot about right now. And it's difficult to fully articulate, but to to back to back up a little bit, you know, I imagine I'm not sure exactly what your audience is, but I imagine most of them are familiar with John Ravakey's work, and John's really laid out the case for the meaning crisis that we have. It's such an interesting world to live in because, paradoxically, you could easily make a case that we live in the best time to live in human history, right? Never been a time when you are more likely to have sufficient food, sufficient clean water, sufficient um, warmth, right? Heat, energy, um, less likely to, you know, die of diarrhea or, you know, the cold or the flu. Never been less likely to be murdered, raped, assaulted, have your stuff taken. People really have a excessively romantic idea about the past. I was just reading about press gangs, right? Like, you know, pirates would just come by and take you and say, Hey, you're a pirate. Now there's nothing you can do about it. You got to get on the oars. Um, and we don't have to worry about that kind of thing at all. And so you'd think, oh, this is great. Like I've got three children. Um, I'm not worried that, that they're going to die because of mumps or measles or, any number of things. And that's not, you know, that's not really been the case. Even, you know, people talk a lot about the Hunter Forger past as this exceptionally idyllic moment in human history. And there's aspects of that that are true. Um, Hunter Forgers probably do, a, a lot of them work maybe a little bit less than we do, or, and they have um, relatively less, like, excesses of power. And they they tend to have a very intense meaning system, like their lives feel really meaningful. But on the other hand, the rates of endemic violence in hunter-forger societies are worse than the most violent cities that we have in the modern world. Like if you average it across cultures, you know, it's like 10 to 60% of men can expect to be murdered or killed in warfare in most pre-state societies. And the objection to that that people would make is, well, we're looking at societies that are on the margin, that have been pushed out by by state-level societies, but even when we look at the archaeological record, we still see 10-15% of men who have visible wounds associated with their death. So 10-15% are, you know, have a spear wound or a, have their skull cracked. You know, it's likely even higher that we don't, you know, we're not just seeing the evidence that of what killed them. So it's a lot. <clears throat> so yeah, so first of all, we should feel blessed to live when we do in some ways. And then at the same time, we have rising epidemics of anxiety and depression and meaninglessness and disconnection from our bodies, right? The obesity crisis, I think, can be seen as a kind of uh, loss of integrity in the body, right? And people don't realize it, but at the same time that we have an obesity crisis, we have a lack of muscular development, a lack of physical development. We're weaker than we've ever been. And this is show, showing up in, you know, inability to have children, right? Fertility is a huge crisis. And the, the, the sense that, that life is surreal, that there's no meaning to it, that there's nothing that we're oriented towards is, is really out there. 
and it, it it's probably upstream of depression and anxiety rather than downstream. And we know this because people will commit suicide even if they're not sad. Um, and, and then the, the last point on this is, uh, well, sorry, I, I, I lost my last point, but <laughs> it, it just goes on and on, right? You can look at something like friendship and see that um, I think it's like 15% of people no longer can say they have even one close friend. And so we have, you know, we have a, we have a crisis of meaning in our culture. I think it's playing out in the extreme polarization that we see. There's a kind of, for me, at least it feels like the political sides are both being driven towards madness. There are, there are elements of, of either political coalition that I can't see as anything other than people just completely losing touch with reality and becoming so attached to the the alienation they have from the other ideology that anything that alienates the other ideology becomes, um, supportable. So <laughs> that's, that's my understanding of the, of the meaning crisis. You have, uh, is that all land for you? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it's an interesting place to start as well in terms of having gratitude for the position that we're in as well as, sort of taking the existential angst seriously. And I 100% agree with you that the romanticization of the past is um, deeply misguided. I've been reading a lot of Irish history lately and the entire thing is just an absolute nightmare. <laughs> um, it's really just mainly people just being murdered by the British and pillaged. No. And, Not uh, just the British, they murder each other lots. <laughs> well, that too, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't throw the British under the bus, but uh, well, yeah, still, that. My, you know, I mean, as you know, my last name is the. Sorry. Is the uh, I was. Yeah, yeah I was it's the second most common last name in Ireland. Have I believe. Ancestry. So when I was in my early teens, I had this whole like Irish American, you know, rah rah thing, and it was actually a way of escaping the like white guilt that I had growing up as a uh, yeah. as a as a member of the counterculture and on the left. Right, there was this whole thing about like. Certain, like literally, you can actually see it in the data. In the nineteen, I think it's in the late nineteen eighties, the number of people who report English as their primary ancestry in the states just drops off a cliff. Like it's like a half reduction in, in people who report it as their common ancestry. Everyone starts identifying as something other than English. Um, Whatever they and can so there was this grasp whole onto any Celtic Renaissance yeah. that happened then, where you know Celtic music becomes really popular. There's fairs and. And there's this Celtic mysticism that goes through the, you know, like where in the, say, the 1970s, it was all about Native American uh, mysticism and mm -hmm. Eastern mysticism. Like Celtic mysticism gets picked up and promoted um, big time around that time. So I was part of that. It turns out my last Irish ancestor immigrated in 1720 and married into New England Puritans. And then it's all New England Puritans down the line. <laughs> Well, you can still still count. <laughs> I've got an Irish Y chromosome, but, but that's in, about it. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but also, I mean, that makes sense in terms of this idea of the loss mm -hmm. of. I love um, the Verveghi talks about the sacred canopy. I can't remember who wrote the book initially, but this loss of the kind of meaning structure that was somewhat built into the environment when you had this kind of scarcity and mm -hmm. these immediate challenges, like you had opposition right in front of you, you had needs that were in front of you. It was, in a sense, w much more aggressive and violent and difficult, but also much more immediate mm -hmm. and more graspable in a sense. Now, I think because we've been uh, kind of sucked out of the realm of nature a little bit, people are kind of the it's a much murkier territory. I mean, we have these problems like obesity and self-destruction and alienation. And it, the existential issues are, they're much more, I suppose, nuanced in a sense that they're within yourself, that the, yeah. this fight is going on, um, as opposed to a fight with nature or with society or with, you know, I suppose it does come out in those areas. But um, do, you, do you see that... Because it, it seems like a lot of your work is about returning to nature in that sense as well. Do you think that that's kind of a bottom-up approach to, to develop that kind of agent arena a relationship again? I mean, in a very fundamental way, nature is the arena, right? Like we can, we can mm. isolate and simplify nature down, which is basically what we're doing in cities, right? Cities are, are nature-made less objectionable to human beings in a way 
And there's some downside cost to that, right? If you, uh, if you pave the road, um, it becomes a lot easier to walk on. The energy cost of getting from one point to another is lower um, before you even add vehicles. Uh, but there's less nutrition for your body, right? So if you move through a traditional environment, uh, like if you're, say, a, a hunter-forager or horticulturalist in Papua New Guinea, where you have these very steep slopes filled with fallen logs and rocks and, and, and vines, it's like you become very agile because you have to be. You have to be strong to move up and down through these environments. You have to access the whole panoply of, of, uh, of human locomotor capacities. But then you come to the city and you can just walk everywhere. And it turns out that your shoulder, for instance, can start developing an impingement just because you don't have enough time hanging from things. So by simplifying the world for ourselves, we are actually removing a lot of the nutrition. And to go back to the, the meaning thing, there's that paradox that comfort is not necessarily something we want to get rid of, right? It's like if you have children, you don't want to go back to a world where 50% of them are going to die. And at the same time, hardship gives life meaning. How do we square that? Um, I, I really like the work of, uh, or, or I shouldn't say that because I haven't read his work as deeply as I, I like, but I like a few things that I've seen from Sebastian Younger that really rang for me. Uh, he was a, um, a journalist who worked in uh, Afghanistan during the Afghanistan war. And he wrote uh, a couple different books on it, but he wrote a book called Tribe and he was interviewed on Joe Rogan. And he said something that really struck with me. He said that what human beings like best is being part of a small group struggling to survive. And, or Sorry, there's a key piece that I missed there. He said, human beings like being an integral part of a small group struggling to survive. And we like that. We, we're rewarded by that because if we weren't, we wouldn't have survived. That was, that was the default condition throughout human history until very, very recently. And so it, it fires our meaning-making kind of neurology in the brain when we're doing that. And that, that's essentially what we have done with our retreats without really recognizing it, is we've created an environment in which each individual becomes very relevant and salient to all the other individuals. They all experience some kind of positive struggle, and they have triumph, and they bond through it. And then they have this experience of deep, meaningful intimacy. So we... Well, I guess I want to tell you the story. Like, I went... I took a, a group of friends canyoneering recently. So canyoneering is, is kind of scary, right? Like we're, we drop into this canyon and we, we descend on ropes into a canyon. And then we're hiking down it and having to descend on ropes repeatedly and having to jump down into water and jump from rock to rock to rock. And to get from the top of the canyon to the bottom of the canyon is nine hours. So one of the, one of the people who came with me, he slipped on a jump and cracked his chin open and had a, like a bleeding open chin <laughs> right from the start. And then uh, another one was a young woman who has struggled a lot with fear and she, she fell repeatedly because she was too afraid to like, she, she was overreacting to everything and falling down. <clears throat> so we, and then a, another guy who had came, he had injured his foot from overtraining just a few, just like two weeks before. And so he's like limping for nine, you know, down this canyon. And like when you, when you work with groups and you've do, done this for a long time, you kind of get a sense for like when a group is in a group, is in a group flow state and it feels really good. And then you get a sense when people are like struggling and it's not fun and they're just, it's kind of miserable. And for like the first hour and a half we were in the canyon, it was like, oh, I don't know if this group was ready for this level of challenge. And people are looking scared. They're looking hesitant. They're looking like, what have I gotten myself into, right? And then at a certain point, you could start to feel it shift. And then everybody's really like, you know, it's still scary. It's still hard. But like people have accepted how challenging it is. 
and they're able to kind of see through the challenge and enjoy how unique the experience is being surrounded by these huge, beautiful waterfalls just pouring down on you and, you know, feeling your body, feeling the work that you're doing, pushing, 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 right? And it's like your mind kind of gets shut down because it just can't, you can't think a lot. Like all that other stuff has to go away. The stuff that preoccupies you in your day to day. So we get to the end and everyone's really happy. And then they, they start sending me like stories about their experience. And it's like, this is one of the most profound experiences I've had in my entire life. This is like coolest thing. And I'm like, wow, it's so interesting to, to see that because I remember how uncomfortable the challenge was for a lot of people in the beginning to the point where I was like, I might have to like pull out and like end this adventure because people are too challenged. And so to me, that just speaks to like how much people actually are in need of a sense of struggle. Um, and especially when they can, then it can show up for other people in a way that it's like, okay, everyone's depending on me overcoming my little issue here and not letting it affect me. And, and so we can, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that, that Younger talked about is this idea that soldiers don't get PTSD because of the trauma they experience in the field. They get PTSD because of the disconnection they experience when they come back from the field. And we've seen <clears throat> like a small shadow of this in our work because we're not out there for 18 months together, right? We're out there for a week. But a lot of people experience a lot of grief in the weeks after an event. Um, because they realize that they don't have a lot of these things that made that moment feel so meaningful in their day-to-day -day life. So I think that to overcome the meaning crisis, we need to recognize that more comfort, more pleasure, more freedom, um, isn't going to get us there. That actually we need positive struggle. And we need positive struggle that brings us into connection with the things that have given a sense of meaning to a human being, to a living being, for throughout our history. And those fundamentally are knowing yourself, right? Knowing how to integrate and coordinate and utilize and be capable within all of the aspects of the self. Those are physical, cognitive, and emotional, right? And then how does that body-mind interact with the, with the physical world? And I, you can kind of think of the rest of the world as a landscape that you move through. How well can you move through that landscape? What are your relationships? What is, your, what is afforded to you? And what are your opportunities within the landscape? And then there's the aspects of the landscape that are tools for you that can be manipulated, what is afforded to you in relationship to those, you know? And then there's the aspect of the landscape, which is other agents. How well do you relate to other living agents? And then there's something like hyper agents, right? So you can, you can be in relationship to uh, another person in a team, but then there's also the spirit of the whole team, right? Like when we're out there in the Canyon, like you might not want to let down your girlfriend who's there, right? But you also don't want to let down the whole group. And you can feel that there's a kind of energy of the group. And are you contributing to bring that energy to a positive place or a negative place? And can you, can you orient your energy to that effectively? And I think that scales up, right? I don't know how high it scales up. I'm not uh, like a... I, I, I follow John in being like a, a non-reductive physicalist, right? I don't think there's a... There's a, uh, uh, I don't, I don't believe in the two worlds mythology, but I think that the reality of principles and of higher order intelligences within this physical realm is, is actually undeniable. And I don't know how high it scales, right? Google is a force that we have to live in relationship to that massively affects our world all the time and whose moods we don't understand. Like I, I work, you know, I work in social media, right? It's like, what is the algorithm doing this week? Do the, do the, do the designers of the algorithm even know? Not really. So 
Those are that's a good. I mean, sorry, that that's just kind of circled back just to the because that was something. I mean, the point of that we're built essentially to struggle with other people, and that that's a kind of optimal position to actually be in is so contrary to the what you've brought up there, which is the technological aspect. Um, I was watching a recent talk on AI with uh, Elon Musk and um, Max Tegman. And the guy, the Israeli prime minister guy, Benjamin Netanyahu or whatever. But um, they were discussing the um, that the positive outcome of AI is essentially heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. And they were having a kind of low-key philosophical debate about what heaven on earth would look like. And it was just like, okay, no scarcity of resources. Everyone has everything they need. And just in my head the whole time, I was just thinking like, no, we've actually been trying to do that. And that doesn't actually work. There's a lack of self-knowledge there about human beings, which is that we, if we don't have goals, if we don't have obstacles, if we don't have the journey, if we aren't sharing it with other people, we go insane and we break down um, and we will create obstacles and chaos in order to have something to do, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. It's interesting, the divergence between this kind of efficiency culture that's happening in tech that's trying to make things streamline everything make it easier easier and then i suppose this other ecologies of practice route that's i think it was kierkegaard that said something like there'll come a point where people the most virtuous thing you can do is make life harder for people instead of just making it easier all the time because like there's a there once it gets so easy people are just gonna their character will fall apart and it it won't be good for them Mm -hmm. and i think we're very much hitting that point in our society yeah because most of our environment is technological as well. I mean, that's the other big problem is we live in a, a virtual world a lot of the time. You know, um, in the Matrix, they said that uh, 1999 was the like the peak technological experience for human beings, and I actually think that might have been true. Like, like, like I'm like obviously I'm a beneficiary of the technologies that have come afterwards. The fact that we're able to sit here and have this conversation is because of technologies that are post 1999. The podcast world, the audiobooks world has been incredibly beneficial to me in my self-education process. And I've been able to make connections with John Verveke and Jordan Peterson and all these people because of the internet. Um, And, you know, like, I'm really not sure that my life would have been, like, some of the great things about my life were afforded to me by these technologies. But I'm not sure my life would have been fundamentally less good if we had just stayed at the level of 1999 technology. And there's a lot of things about the world that look, to me, dramatically worse, right? The political atmosphere is much worse. And we see this in the the mental health of young people in particular is dramatically worse. And a lot of that, I think, is actually technological. You know, there's other other contributing factors. I'm not saying this is monocausal, but I think social media and smartphones have been very unhealthy for for everybody but particularly the young people um so yeah there is a and and i suppose you could say that that what we do is give people a virtuous hardship all right that's 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 uh that's what people pay us a lot of money for (laughs) is to experience an extremely virtuous hardship and and we need it like you know it's funny because people say hey Everyone used to run around in the woods. Everyone used to rough and tumble play. So why would you pay for it? And um, the truth is that people don't do it anymore. And the, the interesting thing, I think, is that when you sort of see a culture sort of going in a specific direction, it can create these back eddies that are the opposite. And then they can become really interesting places where something develops that's much more sophisticated and sees much more deeply, right? So when you, if, if, so basically parkour is, is exploratory locomotor play, right? You, every, every animal does it. Every child does it given the opportunity. But never before have we sort of like taken it out of its sort of implicit context and said, what, what is this thing if we actually try to grow it? if we actually try to use it as a tool for self-cultivation. And there's any number of things that we do all the time that turn out to be incredibly sophisticated if we pay deep attention to them. 
something as simple as breath, right? Like how many mindfulness traditions around the world, how many people have had extraordinary experiences through the breath, right? You can't not breathe. And yet it's very worth your time to work with a teacher who can take you deeply, deeply into understanding how you impact yourself through breath. And so we've, we've discovered that exploratory locomotor play is actually incredibly foundational to self-development. And if we, if we recognize it in that way and we build an ecology of practices around it, it turns out to be really powerful. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's something that I've really experienced through martial arts myself, because I always felt like I had like two educations. I mean, I'm doing a PhD at the moment, so I've gone through like primary, secondary, college, master's, PhD, and I don't think I've had as much development as I did through martial arts or through boxing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's probably not even close. The character logical development in there is so much is, is so un just completely divergent from what you're taught in most kind of bureaucratic education systems. Um, and so in my mind, I've had these kind of two, two trainings essentially through a lifetime of martial arts and through the normal education system, which is great because my dad ran a martial arts gym in Dublin. He's a fifth down black belt. He got me into it when I was like two years old. I know you talk about rough and tumble play. Like we used to just fight each other constantly. That was like, as soon as he walked into a room, that was it we were scrapping and he'd be throwing me around and like it, w- it was br- it was something i i took for granted i suppose mm-hmm. um but then to see the lack of that and i train people in martial arts as well so we get a lot of young men that are in their early 20s they've been watching ufc or something and they want to kind of get into martial arts they want to do it you know maybe they're scared they're nervous or they're uncoordinated and you can just see over the years how they change how it becomes part of their physicality and the way they stand and the way they act and the self-confidence that comes from it the discipline um but even with martial arts i feel there's there's a limit with because a lot of it is aimed at fighting i mean there seems to be something very interesting about evolved move play that you're aiming it more at meaning and wisdom and self-transcendence yeah um how how did you make that kind of move i mean do you feel that um you know, do you see results? I know, I'm sure you do at this point, but I'm interested in how you see the difference, I suppose, between those. Well, I think the martial arts are interesting because the idea of the martial arts as self-cultivation practices is very old, right? Um, That's, you know, martial arts' character development is like how every karate school in the 80s sold itself to parents, right? You come here to learn discipline. You come here to learn character. Um, and, you know, we can go back further and, you know, look at the history of boxing and wrestling and how that was conceptualized as part of, you know, a virtuous education in the 18th century, 19th century. You can see that uh, Qigong and various uh, martial arts were really deeply entwined with Taoist and Buddhist self-cultivation practices in uh, in. In China, um, sumo arises from Shinto, right? It was a, uh, it was a practice that was done at, at Shinto temples. Um, there's a there is this this deep intertwining of it. The issue that I see with martial arts is that over time, there's been a the the, the level of violence in society has has decreased to the point where it's very easy to practice martial arts and have no experiences of violence. And because of that, it's very easy for martial arts to actually become um, disconnected from the very thing that they're actually trying to teach you about. And and I think because capacity for violence is also really um, intertwined in, you know, male dominance hierarchies and male fantasy, like, it's, it's very easy for it to get captured into this sort of cult-like dynamic and in these exaggerated stories, um, which really are actually taking people into bullshit. They're taking people into illusion. The, the, the thing that's really profound about parkour is that you can go do it. You can go do a jump where you would die if you fail, right? There's no moral hazard to it. 
right? Or there's very little moral hazard. If I want to go out and pick fights with people on the street to see how competent I am and to, to experience what 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 real violence is like, um, inherently to, to have a challenge that is really developmental for me, I have to take a lot of risk. A lot of, right, like in, in parkour, I can do a challenge that's really, really psychologically challenging for me that I can be 100% sure that I'm going to be successful every time. But if I'm 100% sure that I'm going to win a fight every time, I'm a bully, right? So I'm going out and hurting people to try to, to demonstrate my mastery. So that's it. That's a huge moral hazard. And then the way to solve, the way that that's been kind of solved in the martial arts has been through sport fighting. But every form of sport fighting misses large parts of the reality of what violence is outside of sport fighting. And because of the culture of sports and the prestige around sports, a lot of the rest of the martial art gets sacrificed. So you've kind of had a bifurcation between what I think of as the doe martial arts, the martial arts that pursue the idea of of the cultivation of martial skill as a way towards self-development and the jitsu martial arts, the uh, martial arts that are conceived primarily as a set of techniques that allow you to win really in a specific context, you know? So something like Tai Chi is a Do martial art, Aikido, whereas something like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is primarily not. And somewhere in between is something that actually is a truly great characterological tool, but either actually either of the current main two ways that we navigate through the the martial arts um, has these really big problems, right? You've seen it and I've seen it and I've experienced it, right? I, when I was in my, I had very interesting upbringing, right? I experienced some extraordinarily idyllic and beautiful things. And then I also had some pretty traumatic stuff that, that went on and, um, in particular, because I had learning disabilities and because my parents' marriage was at a really difficult p- place in my early, uh, early childhood years, like, um, uh, school years, first grade, second grade, I started getting in a lot of fights, um, pretty bad, right? Like, uh, and so I was put in the martial arts and I learned to control myself and have discipline and stop fighting. I didn't need to prove myself anymore by beating kids up in the schoolyard because I, I was able to go spar in my Tang Soo Do school. I was able to know something about myself and I was able to have someone who I aspired to be like my martial arts teacher who told me it's not okay to go do this outside unless you absolutely have to. But if we look at the best combat sport athletes in the world, the reality is they're not exemplars of character. No, I'm thinking <laughs> of Conor McGregor. He's, <laughs> he started out all right. Yeah, but, Conor, uh, you know, yeah. Conor's a, an interesting figure, right? Like Conor's coach, John Kavanaugh, was, uh, is a black belt under the coach I started jujitsu, not not directly under, but I started under one of his black belts, and I'm a huge fan of his, Matt Thorne. He's been a huge inspiration to me. And <clears throat> when I look back at Conor's interviews in 2014, 2015, 2016, I see a human being with very high potential, someone who's thoughtful, someone who's highly intelligent, someone who's thinking in a very pro-social way. Why does he want to become famous? Why does he want to become successful? To take care of the people around him. And and somehow he got trapped in this persona that he created to sell fights. And his demons sort of took mm-hmm. over and, and everything now is about status right? He doesn't talk about taking care of the people around him. He talks about how he's the richest, he's the best, he's the, you know, he's going to be a billionaire. He's going to do all these things. And, and, and now he, you know, he punches old men in the pub. It's, you know. Yeah. I actually started out training with them in the same boxing club as him in Crumlin boxing club uh, with Phil Sugliff. Um, Whenever I was eight, I started in there and so like, cause again phil's club is very much like he's keeping a lot of troubled kids out of trouble he's given them a purpose a place to go he's tough on them he doesn't you know take any shit and uh yeah it's there is that aspect of it but then i i suppose because yeah the professional fighting aspect you know 
if you're going to be a professional fighter, okay, that's your life. Um, you have to train, you have to fight. The fighting, in some sense, is the truth test. Mm-hmm. When you go into the ring, you find out everything you've done, you find out everything you haven't done. Yeah. Um, but for people then who are in dojos, I suppose the phenomena of Mac dojos and this idea of you go in and you learn a bunch of stuff that's completely not fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. You get into a real fight, you get beaten up, you've just been tricked, essentially. So needing that kind of in-between where you can practice the path of the martial artist, face real violence and real challenge, but then also have the self-improvement aspect of it um, to have that built into it as well. But it's it's a hard line to walk, I think. And it is, you do need a coach that's capable of doing that themselves. And a lot of the times I think gyms either fall on either side of that division. Um, yeah. I mean, I, who's in charge really? Like, you know, Matt has said that he believes Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Matt Thornton has said Brazilian Jiu Jitsu has far greater potential for character development than, than Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. And I agree with him, but I don't mm-hmm. think that there are very many Jiu Jitsu schools that are putting any energy into the pedagogical thought of how does that actually occur? You can observe that many troubled young men come in and become less troubled, but you know, I would say John Jones is the greatest MMA fighter of all time. And I think he's one of the worst human beings that we've ever seen at <laughs> the peak of sport. And, and that's, that's, that's common enough, right? Like, obviously, the world doesn't work in such a way that virtue in physical ability is going to be perfectly aligned with virtue in other areas. And, and when money gets involved in all these things, it's like, obviously we're going to end up with some people at the top who we wouldn't necessarily want <laughs> based on their character. But I think that my, my reading of it is that MMA has so many people at the top that are actually pretty uh, profoundly um, morally insufficient um, that it actually indicates a pipeline problem. That somewhere along the lines, that capacity of the martial arts to provide positive transformation is actually getting sacrificed, is actually getting lost, and um, and the, and another dynamic is taking over, which is corrupting human beings. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with fame and the structure of of MMA and boxing as promotional events. But we, as martial artists, you know, like this is something John said that it really struck me. He said like, if you're going to train people in violence, and if you're not training them in wisdom, um, then it's irresponsible, right? It's as if we're teaching people to fire handguns and not teaching them anything about handgun safety. Right? Um, so I think that it's something that, 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 that martial arts teachers really need to grapple with at this stage. Um, so that's, that's, but to go back to your original question, how has Evolve Move Play done it differently? I think that there's a few, and how, do, how did that come about? I think there's something, like I said, really unique about parkour, which is that I think it's easier for the Do and the Jitsu to be aligned in parkour because um, it just doesn't have some of those corrupting factors that that that, uh, that martial arts has. And... It, and the interesting thing is, like, if you look at something like the study of fear, the experience of fear, um, once you've been hit in the face and you're, like, actually sparring, you don't really have a lot of time to feel afraid. You're, you're kind of in action and, and reactive, right? You might, you might get pinned down and might get hit and might go through, like, a really intense, like, like rise up of fear. But there's something different in the way that it has to be processed. And I think there's something really valuable about like, okay, go through the shark tank experience in, in jujitsu, get overwhelmed, get scared, fight through it. Right. But there's something really interesting about walking up to a jump. Right. To me, it's like the closest thing in martial arts would be walking into the ring, like stepping in. And yeah. Literally fight. squaring off. Yeah, yeah, as the squaring off kind of, yeah, and deciding that you're going to fight. Jump. But imagine that you could do that like 50 times in a session. Like feel that level of okay and and know your process for overcoming it. That I think is what makes parkour really a uniquely powerful place to start the study of your own response to challenge. And I think that taking parkour and integrating it into martial arts, integrating it into team sport, integrating it into dance, integrating it into literally like 
storytelling, theater. Mm. When all those things start to integrate, you have this capacity to see the metagame of life that all of these things are actually in service to more, more profoundly. The analogy that that's popping into my head is we, we have five senses, right? Because it's very easy for us to get a false signal from any one sense and the other senses act as another form of verification. And so you can imagine that we're like, focusing in these different lenses on a problem. And by focusing those lenses and having access to different lenses, we have a more, um, a more accurate picture, right? So if you imagine that parkour and martial arts and dance and, um, um, you know, weightlifting, they're all, in relationship, they're all, they're all a local game, but they all reveal something about a meta game. And you can fall in love with the 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 local game's kind of pathway into the meta game on some level and say, "Hey, we, you know, we're seeing this, and this is profound, and this is something beyond it." But you're only able to see so much through that game. It's kind of like the the blind man and the elephant. But if you take on these different yeah, practices, you just get a little piece. Now you're saying, "Hey, mm-hmm. I'm going in and experiencing what it's like to touch the tusk." and what it's like to touch the leg, and what it's like to touch the undercarriage, and what it's like to touch the ear. And now I have a much more clear picture. Ah, it's an elephant. Right? Yes. And okay. so I think that's what's uh, a good way of thinking about what's so profound about taking on an ecology of practices and why those relationships yeah. that I laid out are so fundamental to recognizing what's going to bring us into a deep experience of meaning in life. Yes, that because the the idea of the kind of counterpoises. I mean, my ecology of practices that I've worked out is the martial arts, but then I also write stage plays mm-hmm. and short stories, and have written for over ten years at this point, and also then studying philosophy, doing the dialogical yeah. kind of practices. I've done uh, John's uh, dialogos mm-hmm. and circling course as well, and do some stuff around that, and I've started to see how through the counterposition of these different arts, I know. John talks about the dialogical, imaginal mindfulness and embodiment mm-hmm. kind of model of the ecologies of practices. Through the counterpoise, I've got a more complete picture because I, I did feel the martial arts training super profound, but also there's there's stuff I got from writing that I couldn't get in martial arts. Mm-hmm. There's stuff I got from philosophy and from dialogue that I couldn't get in martial arts as well. Mm-hmm. So there, in some sense, there needs to be those bulwarks of, of the multiple opponent processes together yeah. to get that yeah. better picture. Yeah. Um, the, the fundamental claim that, that one of the fundamental claims behind this model that I'm offering of the, the five relationships um, of practice is that those are actually the fundamental opponent processing relationships that we can have. Right. So, so Don, John talks about the dialogical self, right there. You're, you're a system of opponent processing relationships, right? So the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, right? Your, your sympathetic is always trying to tell you, Hey, be more anxious, more aroused, more ready to take on the world. Your parasympathetic is always trying to say, Hey, we got to take some time to rest. We got to take some time to digest, right? There's no optimal end state because there's actually an environment that, 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 opponent processing is trying to solve for. So over time, it, it changes. And we think of homeostasis like there's this time we're trying to return to a, a baseline. But really, I like the term aliostasis. The baseline is actually changing all the time because the relation, the optimal relationship to the environment is always changing. And if you read John's relevance realization papers, you see that the, the whole concept of relevance realization itself is set up off of these same opponent processing relationships, right? Exploit versus explore for instance. So like we can think about this in relationship to practice. Should you just keep doing your, your Bujin Khan or should you go try some boxing? Right. Should you, you know, just dance Lindy hop or should you go learn some contemporary? Would you become a better dancer if you just did some parkour? Right. Or maybe, you know, and then beyond like, 
if dance is actually in service to your character, a lot of times the thing that you've spent all this time on is actually not even the best tool anymore for your self-development. And so that's where we get into that, that exploit, explore thing, right? What is relevant? So we, we have one of those. So we have a, he has a bunch. I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but we're, we're integrating all these layers of opponent processing at the level of the, the physical, right? You know, some part of you, like if you, in any athletic movement, some of you is trying to be still and, and, and hold the structure. And some of you is trying to, to move off of that structure. So there's a stabilization and a dynamics aspect of athletic movement. So if you train yourself such that you become more and more stable, you can actually start getting, getting rid of your ability to create muscle synergies. So we see this, people don't realize this, but we see this a lot with the kind of traditional weight training that's really popular, right? Everyone thinks that if you just squat heavier and deadlift heavier and bench press heavier, like it's just going to make you more athletic. And it works for most people going from like a novice to an intermediate level of strength. But we see a rapid kind of fall off in the positive transfer and we can actually start to see negative transfer. You can take an elite sprinter and make them slower by improving their deadlift and squat because you put too much effort into it and you actually produce negative adaptations. We don't have to go into that. That's probably a little too deep, but, um, so you, you, you need to be able to stabilize your core and you also need to be able to disassociate your hip from your shoulder, right? If you want to punch hard, a bench press and a squat that gets you always stacked and sagittal is not going to do it. The work for you, you have to be able to get the shoulder back and create stretch through the fascia to spring back and, you know, load that hand for you. So what are the opponent processing the relationships within the self? And then the self is obviously in relationship to the environment. What are the relationships in the environment? That's the landscape, the tools, the other agents and the, you know, hyper agents. If you put yourself in relationship to those things, that's going to give you the best capacity to become adaptive to the world. Um, one of the, the, the analogies we're working with a lot right now in our thinking is the analogy of attunement, right? So if you, if you train martial arts all the time and you think about violence all the time, and you think about what would happen if somebody ambushed you in a dark alley and how you're going to rip out their eyes and grab their testicles, right? And you get yourself on this hair trigger of violence. And then like, you know, your kid jumps at you, <laughs> right? You got to defend yourself. Like they're going to land with their knee on your face, but you probably don't want to rip their eye out. Um, that might not be good. You know, and like soldiers, this is a real problem for soldiers coming back, right? They're on a hair trigger. They're, they're in an environment where someone, you know, they need to be amped up, but it can be really dangerous for the people around them when they can't adjust to the environment. So how do we train people to have a more adaptive capacity to be better attuned, right? To, to recognize the difference between playing, you know, black metal versus classical music. And so we can do that across all these axes. So that's how I, I think about it as, uh, just like you're, you're literally, I think it, you know, that, that parasympathetic versus sympathetic, there's a, there's an appropriate attunement of the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system that resonates with the, with the environment that you're in. If you're hanging out with a bunch of friends and everybody's relaxed and having a good time and one person's super anxious, it, it kills the vibe, <laughs> right? That sounds super wooey or, or, or slang, but Literally, like you're, you're, you're sending signals out to each other all the time through your, this, the, the tone of your voice, through the, your physical posture, etc. And if someone's signals are not in alignment with the rest of the signals of the group, it disrupts the, the, the psychological container that the group is at that point. And it is very much like having somebody who's singing off key or out of rhythm in a chorus. And so I, I think that's just such a beautiful way of really getting a felt sense of what we're aiming at, right? Can you train yourself such that you can fall into that resonance, right? Appropriately. 
um, so that you can play melody off it, so that you can play harmony off of it. Like that's so. I mean, it it's crazy that it's something that's coming up for me there is that that's what philosophy used to be about. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking of Seneca and like the harmony of nature within yes. and without coming into the flow of nature flowing, and this idea of a kind of continuous sense of joy and peace of mind from always being you know capable of getting yourself into the right position for the the moment and the time. Um, and I kind of what was coming up in my mind was that are do virtues. Are virtues tracking that kind of middle way in a sense? Because you have the opponent processing all of the time, and we have our ability to find the p- appropriate mean, which is a virtue, really. Um, and how how capable we are of that is really our character, in a sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've, uh... so I think Aristotle would have said that like courage and cowardice exist on a continuum and that the ends of the continuum are pathological, right? And I I see courage as a higher order value than that. It's not the same as fearlessness. So fearfulness and fear mm-hmm. fearlessness you could see as a continuum where there's an appropriate middle ground, and that appropriate middle ground is shifting in relationship to the environment. But courage to me is the capacity to act in the face of fear. And I don't actually think that that can become excessive. Mm. Right. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, I suppose the excess of courage is uh, recklessness. Um, so in the sense of always, anytime you feel fear, charging into a situation maybe or constantly being mm-hmm. over the top about trying to do dangerous things to appear fearless. Yeah. When actually, you're kind of controlled by fear. Um, so, yeah, so you're... <sighs> So fearlessness is not a virtue, right? Recklessness is not a virtue. But the capacity to overcome fear when it arises, I don't think there's ever a, a negative to that. Yep. So so I think there's there's parts of virtues that are that are these spectrums where we're looking for that golden mean. And then there's higher order virtues that mm-hmm. they're like the platonic essence of virtue or something where they're, 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 there's, it's, we can only move towards, we can only move towards it. Right. Um, one way to think about this is I think that if we want to love someone well, we have to, we actually have to offer something that is between care and discipline, something between care and boundaries, right? So, like, if you think about a child, a child needs you to make sure its needs are met, right? So the child is hungry, you feed the child, the child falls down and is bruised, and you pick it up and comfort up, comfort the child, and you give, give the child a, a, a Band-Aid, right? Kiss the boo-boo. Um... But it also has a need for discipline. It also has a, a child also has a need for um, for encouragement. So you can say to a child, "You can do this thing that you're afraid to do, and you, you need to push through it, right? Or you can do this thing that you just don't want to do, but it's necessary for your development and growth." If you, if you give a child nurture without discipline and, and encouragement, um, it creates weakness. It creates dependency. On the flip side, if you give a child discipline without love, right, it creates hardness, right? It creates an inability to connect, a lack of sensitivity. So we can take that same thing and say, maybe that's, those are could contingent those are variables those are ends of the spectrum and how you should treat yourself or as a teacher how you should treat a student so i noticed at some point that the times that i felt i was most disciplined in my life inevitably resulted in burnout and injury so i was like well i need to i need to know how not to to end up Mm -hmm. all the way over there but then i would i would cycle between extreme discipline and then excessive self-indulgence 
right? It was like, well, clearly. It's like the Buddha. Yeah. The, the Buddha, yeah. Extreme to the other. Yeah. So you clearly, like, just, you know, not eating enough calories and only eating, you know, protein and broccoli and uh, white rice and or brown rice and then training four hours a day was not working for me. So, okay. Now it's time to, to play video games and eat ice cream. It's like, well, that's not helping me either. So what I realized is that you have, uh, you, you have, uh, there's a, there's a shadow side to caring, which is indulgence, right? You give the child sweets every day because the child smiles and is happy when you give them sweets, even though down the road they're less happy because now they're, they're, they're emotionally uh, dysregulated. And you can see that, but you do it anyways, because you need that emotional feedback of their, of their positive regard when they get a little piece of candy. And the flip side is that discipline can, 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 uh, can revert to abuse, right? You know, we don't use physical punishment with our children at all. And I, I don't think that it is the case that it is always wrong to use physical discipline with children necessarily. But what I do think is that I think that adults don't necessarily uh, take seriously enough how much of a temptation stepping into that is. Right? I experienced this with training dogs, right, when I was younger. Right, I was I was taught a really harsh method of training dogs, and there was a point where other things in my life came out, and I I I I went too far with one of the dogs that I was working with, and I really regretted it afterwards. And I realized that like as soon as you give yourself the the freedom to use physical force to negatively condition an animal, you're all you always have a pathway for your anger to express out. <laughs> Um, and that's, that's a very dangerous thing to give yourself access to. So that's, you know, why we make that choice is that it's like, uh, it's not that the tool can't, couldn't possibly improve a child's life. And maybe children who are, who are in much more difficult circumstances need someone who can, who can use that tool effectively. But I don't want to take on the risk in myself of giving myself that potential moral hazard. Um, and in the same way, right, you can wake up in the morning and go for a run because it's it's what you've committed to, or you can go for a run because, because there's some pain inside you that is going to be hidden by inflicting more pain on yourself. And and so you have to you have to recognize that that what looks like discipline can be abuse, or you might not even know the difference. Um and so what, what's motivating it? What, what's the intention? So there's a dark side. So we want to be moving from abuse and indulgence to care, right? So like um, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm tired and worn out and I sit down and just scroll my, my Instagram feed, right? That's indulgence to me. Like it's not really doing the thing. It's not really filling the bucket that I need fed. If I actually just go and take a nap when I'm tired, that's actually like a higher expression of care for myself. And as I've been able to move from more reliance on something like my feed to more reliance on something like sleep, it's really improved my life. So the shadow is, the, is abuse and indulgence. The, the higher expression is discipline and care. But, but there's still a golden mean. You can still over-discipline yourself. You can still have excess. But I would say that the, high or, the highest order is actually agopic love, right? That, that what guides you in that choice is a deep, desire to bring the good into being in relationship to yourself in relationship to a child in relationship to a student and that you cannot possibly want to bring the good into being too much so for me agape like courage is a higher order virtue there is no there's no golden mean there's no excess there's only mm. you only want to become more capable of exp of expressing agape in the world yeah, and I'm thinking almost that there's a, I that I had John Verveke's where you know the 
there's no panacea practice in a sense, but there's no, um, you always have that dramatic tension of opposites and going too far and not going far enough and learning where that mean is as you progress, but that that requires attention to one's error correction. Um, I know Verveke talks about it like a mindset of optimizing rather than maximizing. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to maximize your discipline or maximize your indulgence, mm-hmm. you're trying to optimize between them. Um, for what is necessary for the time but that that's almost like a way of life that you have to commit yourself to in a sense it's very easy to just unconsciously go through the motions be very reactive to what's going on not particularly well defined and so there does seem to be a a pedagogical challenge there do you think that's something that evolve move play that like optimizing mindset or the you know which is a kind of love, I think, in a way. It's mm-hmm. it's love of the truth and bringing the good into being that, you know, is what you exert the moral effort for to attend to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you, is that something you've built into it in a way? that you, is that working? I think so, yeah. I mean... So if you, if, if you do parkour, you have to have a relationship with truth. Right? Because you can do a jump or you cannot do a jump. Right? And love is ultimately what keeps you in something. Right? You, 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 you love this jump because something about it is beautiful. So there's intrinsic in the practice, there's this relationship with the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we can see that across all these different practices. And by looking at them through these different lenses, we can, we have to make the, there's this step that has to be made, which is that eventually just have to recognize that what you're doing isn't in service of the local game. Right. It's the higher game. If you, if you go to the gym today to practice boxing or Bujinkan, right? Like, how much do you feel like you're ever going to have to utilize those skills in a direct practical way? Um, in Dublin, sometimes <laughs> fairly regularly. More than I would like. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, no, I mean, yeah, it's, there's yeah other goals, I suppose. Yeah. Fitness, health. Yeah. I live in a town. Just feeling good. Oh, so like, I don't go to bars, right? Yeah. I don't drink. Um, I'm 40 years old. I'm 41 years old. I've got kids. I live in a small suburban cul-de-sac. Like the likelihood that anyone is going to assault me is vanishingly low. Right. And it could happen, right? It could happen, but spending my life preparing for it, it's very unreasonable. Right. So (laughs) I always joke, you know, what, what cracks me up is you go to a self-defense seminar and you see these guys super, uh, you know, they're super serious about like how you have to be super pragmatic about what would happen if someone assaults you in a dark alley and how, you know, you don't get to choose the bad things that happen to you. It's like, sure. <clears throat> and then they walk outside and they start smoking cigarettes. <laughs> well, maybe you are choosing the, the likelihood that you're going to, that you're going to be assaulted versus the likelihood you're going to get cancer is, is actually like, you know, yeah. I, like I always joke that like the, the, the primary self-defense skills that we need in life are the skill to not drink and drive, the skill to not text and drive, the skill to push our plate away. <laughs> right? These are actually the primary self defense skills. The primary killers, really? Heart disease? Heart disease, is the, cancer. The big opponent? Um, Diabetes? You know. Car accidents kill way more people than assaults and murders do. Right? Situational awareness. Um, you know, where are drunk drivers? People think about that, right? So, I I think you there's a point where if someone really thinks deeply about their practice of martial arts. If they're, you know, if you're not 25 years old and you're not out in bars and you're not like 
engaging with this type of thing, there's a point where you got to be like, if I want to keep doing this, I got to find another reason to do it, right? Like when I was in my mid-20s, I worked as a nightclub security. I was physically picking people up and throwing them out of bars. Um, I had high relevance to my martial arts practice. Because I chose to put myself in a situation where it was highly relevant. Because I, I wanted that, right? I didn't have to work nightclub security. <laughs> um, but, I, but I'd spent... 15 years becoming a martial artist and nobody was picking fights with me. So I needed to go find a place where they would. Uh, <laughs> but I don't, I like, you know, I'd still find it fun to pick people up and throw them out of bars if I'm honest, but I just don't want to still do it. Yeah. Another, a backup career. Yeah. case. But I, I don't want to be up till 4am and you know, in yeah, that environment, I, I hate house music. It's terrible. Sure. Um, <laughs> and drunk people and drunk people yeah it's not my scene so so yeah so it's like if i want to continue the martial arts i have to see them as in service of something else and then that's when we begin to see the metagame right and what are the what are the what are the dimensions of the metagame in some sense it's it's like coming into true relationship with the good the true and the beautiful um Oh man, that's quite a place to, I mean, I, I feel like we'll have to talk again, Rafe. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time, I know, but that, the metagame, that's uh, something I will be pondering now. Um, and for people who are interested in Evolve Move Play, I'm going to put all the details in the description. Um, where's the best place for them to go if they're looking for workshops and stuff? Where would you like them to yeah. check it out? Uh, EvolveMoveplay.com, we've got retreats, workshops, and online courses available for people. Uh, we just uh, debuted, I think, uh, six workshops coming out for next year. We just started our schedule for next year. So we've got stuff coming up on the West Coast, uh, the States, stuff in um, the East Coast, uh, Central of the Country, and um, and a couple in Europe as well. So people from all over can find us. Um, and you know, as those fill up, we can start looking at other spots. I know we've got some interest in Ireland. We'd love to come to Ireland. Uh, oh man, that, if yeah. you come to Ireland, I'll I'll bring a crowd. Yeah. I'll bring all the dodgy Dubliners. will come down. And I think <laughs> that'd be great. There's a lot of interest in that type of thing here for sure. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Well, yeah. So then, yeah, and then we have online workshops. So if people want to get or online courses, so if people want to get started right away, we have these courses that integrate aspects of of daily movement practices with parkour progression and um and mindfulness practices and journaling and all of that is done um you know starting with stuff that you can do in your own home and then working up to seeing the environment for what it affords you and finding the places in your environment that you can swing and jump and climb and move in trees and on rocks and you know urban environments as well so people interested in that that's where you find it Amazing. Thank you so much, Rafe. And um, all of the links will be in the description as well. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you.